Salutations to all you bookcasers. I'm Charlie Gibson. I feel like you really missed out because we did a previous take of this open and I sang. I sang Joel Gray's Welcome and I thought it was beautiful and fantastic. And and Joel Gray may have won an Oscar, but um, I think I bested him. Uh, we're being sued by Joel Gray at this point, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's another issue that we won't bother you uh-huh. all with. Uh, we are pleased to have you with us for another edition of The Bookcase. And our guest today is Amy Sarig King. Uh, she writes books primarily for young adults uh, in the young teenage years and mostly about emotional problems. But we got very much intrigued by her latest book, which is just out. It is called Attack of the Black Rectangles. And that title, we thought, was really interesting and intrigued us. What she's referring to are the redactions that can occur in various books. I think we're all uh, somewhat familiar with redactions, given what's happened with the affidavit and the Trump issue. We have wanted to avoid politics on this bookcase, but there's one issue that really does concern Kate and me, and that is book banning. Book banning and book challenges are very much in the news right now, and they are growing by considerable numbers around the country, as we're going to be talking about in this podcast. I want to take a minute to draw the line between book challenges and book bans. A book challenge is when somebody writes down or makes objection to a book in a collection. A book ban is the action that is taken after that. So the book ban is sort of the actual codification of the removal of the book if that happens. But a book challenge, which is far more common in this country, is, you know, that's a letter, that's a school board meeting. And I just wanted to make that distinction as well. We mentioned that, or I mentioned the fact that this is growing and it is growing geometrically. Instead of an independent bookstore in this podcast, we're going to be talking to uh, Jonathan Friedman from PEN America. He has been chronicling how many challenges and how many bans have been occurring across the country in school districts, in individual libraries, and indeed legislatively in some states. It is growing. And it is not just an individual calling up the school and saying, I'm worried about such and such a book. There are huge lists of books that organizations are sending around trying to get those books challenged or banned. And in most cases, probably people haven't read them. If you are a YA fan, Amy Sari King has only recently started writing under her whole name. Her books up until I think Marvin Gardens, uh, me and Marvin Gardens was A.S. King. So if you're familiar with her that way, this is an amazing book. It's a great book. It is written for probably the 12 to 15 year old range, but I loved it as an adult. And I think that A.S. King should just be recognized for being a great writer. She does not talk down to kids and, and frankly, is described as a surrealist writer which I think is courageous when you're writing for that age group. She's a tremendous writer. And I love this book because it is clear how passionate she is about intellectual freedom. It's a great conversation. And you're going to want to stick around afterwards, as as Dad said, for the deep dive into the discussions where we can put some numbers behind this problem. It would be wrong for us not to, I think, take a stand when it comes to book challenges because intellectual freedom, I think, is at the heart of what we do. So we will get to our conversation. Here's our conversation with Amy Sarek King. Amy Sarek King, it is such a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. And I really look forward to this conversation. We have been doing this podcast now for about six months, and we've had a great roster of writers to talk to. 
We've talked to independent bookstore people that we think are critical to people's reading. But until now, we haven't addressed the question of banned books. And we have wanted to do that because it's arising once again, as it does periodically. And while we think we should avoid politics, this is not, at least to us, on one hand, another type of issue. We both thought when we read Attack of the Black Rectangles that we'd found a way to start to address the problem. Why did you decide to write this book and how did you feel it gets at the problem? Well, thank you for having me. I'm going to start there. It's really nice to be here. And why I wrote the book, this was a different one. I think this was my 27th novel, and it was different compared to the others. Uh, I had experienced the exact same censorship. My son brought home The Devil's Arithmetic by Jane Yolen, the same book that is discussed inside of Attack of the Black Rectangles, and it was censored in the exact way that I describe in the book. And so why I decided to write about it, I think, is because I'm a writer. And where do I think best? I think best on paper. I think best when my little fingers are moving on the keyboard. I could kind of parse out all of the things that felt wrong to me, right, in this censorship, specifically that book. That's a book about the Holocaust. So we must always use context when we're talking about book banning or book censorship. And that particular scene was so, so important that to censor something in the middle of it said more than just one thing, you know? Anyway, so my experience with it at the school, it didn't have, really, it had kind of a zero outcome. It was just sort of a neutral outcome where I voiced my concern through on three occasions, had three meetings, and they reacted to me like I was just a kooky author lady. And I kept saying, you know, you know, look, I, I've done many other jobs in my life. I've done all kinds of things all over the world. It's I'm not just a kooky author lady. And I did say, you do realize this is a slippery slope. I've written library policy. I've served on library boards. This is a slippery slope. I don't think they really heard that or understood what that meant. But I don't really want to get into the political side of it. And this is a fun way to look at it. I don't see things that way. When a third grader loses access to books, when a sixth grader, when a 12th grader, I don't care what grade they're in. If they're in an educational facility and they lose access to information and books, then that's not a good thing. That is a step backward. And especially if those books include history that has been proven. And if we're trying to limit the information about, oh gosh, everything from our own history here in America to categorizing who and who isn't in our society acceptable or appropriate. And those are the ways I'm looking at censorship, not necessarily political, black and white or red and blue in, in the case of this country. I don't want young people to lose access to books, period. You know, it's interesting. I have this theory that in some ways book challenges come from lazy adults. I don't even really like to use the word lazy. Let's say adults who don't particularly want to have uncomfortable conversations. I read about there was a community that was trying to ban To Kill a Mockingbird because it is a white savior story. I love that book. I like the fact that I have to question why I liked that book so much and why it made me feel so good. And I think those conversations are hard to have, but I also think we should not be spared those conversations. They are so important. I think when we're teaching a book in a school, and I, I say this with confidence because so many of my best friends are teacher trainers or educators who teach teachers, if that makes sense, how to teach. I think it's important that we remember if we're going to teach a book, we need to be prepared to have the conversations around it. I also loved To Kill a Mockingbird. I thought Atticus Finch was the bomb.com. He was amazing. <laughs> I loved him. But 
as I evolved as a human being and stepped out of my comfort zone of, oh, everybody thinks this, and this is how everybody's life goes, <laughs> you know, that entitlement, that not entitlement, that privilege, I believe is the word I'm looking for, you know. Once I stepped out of that and really went, oh, okay, that is problematic. Excellent. Let's keep reading the amazing book and talk about why it's problematic. And that actually is what's trying, I think a lot of people are trying to shut that conversation down. In fact, this is all really about shutting down conversations that make adults, you're absolutely right, Kate, uncomfortable. It's interesting that you say that because I actually think too, one of the more insidious effects of book challenges is the conversations that you don't even hear about, which go inside a librarian's mind or a teacher's mind. That says, boy, I'd really like to teach Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry this year, but I just don't think I want to get into the brouhaha with the parents that I anticipate having this year. And that that is a longer, long-term insidious effect that we don't even really talk about. Well, absolutely. I mean, my local librarian had the police call on her for ordering a book. I mean, she the, a lot of them. I just spoke to the Pennsylvania School Librarians Association, burned them. I knew exactly what to say to them because I was angry. Now, I didn't yell at them. But, you know, I, I was able to like I, I, there was a whole page that I read very quickly that were just truths because a lot of our country's running on things that go beyond a lot of what we're talking about, like conspiracy theories that are really harmful. And I'm not sure we should <laughs> I'm not sure we should have access to those. But I also don't want to shut those down either, because those create curiosity, those create conversations. But Amy, some might say that your protagonists in Attack of the Black Rectangles are not talking about banning of books. They're just objecting to a couple of words that have been redacted in the book. And they would say, well, that's not banning a book. That's just, you know, that's just trying to protect our kids. But as you said, it's a slippery slope. In this book, it's the context is that it's the Holocaust. And it's a very age-appropriate, open, like it's kind of the opening volley. If you've never heard about the Holocaust, this is a, a Jane Yolen's book, The Devil's Arithmetic, is an, a really great book to read, to see that first experience, because it's a time travel book. It's not, it's not, it's hard to explain, but she did it really well. And she was able to make that modern or present day reader kind of really shadow her protagonist and follow her through the time travel to suddenly be in the terrifying position of being sucked back in time and getting put on a boxcar and knowing, see, she knew. So she knows where she's going. Those other people in the boxcar didn't know. And so the scene that was first censored in this book is the one that actually brought me the most discomfort that it was censored. And it was because once she gets to the camp, eventually they're taken to the showers. When I say they, I mean young girls. I'm talking about, you know, 11, 12-year-old girls. They're in a shower. She is terrified because she knows what happened in those showers. So she expects to perhaps not come out of the shower. And instead, when they get there, the water goes on very briefly. They're cold, and then it goes off again. They're cold, they're naked. And they're surrounded by grown men, soldiers screaming at them. And in that moment, to censor something that's anatomical and simple, and to be quite fair, what anyone would do in that situation, you know, is, well, it brought up a lot of questions. I think my biggest thing was that it, it undermined the intelligence and the maturity level, really, of the group. It goes back to what you just said, Kate, like, why would you teach that book if that is, <laughs> if that is your problem? You're in the middle of this giant, violent, terrifying scene, and you're concerned with a perfectly normal body part. Somebody who hasn't read the book, I should explain something that Kate talked about. There's a teacher who has redacted, as you say, an anatomical, a word that represents an anatomical part 
a female's anatomical part. She writes letters to the local newspaper that are quoted in the book, and she's always trying to inculcate in the town a set of values that are hers. Her name is, as Katie mentioned, her name is Laura Samuel Set. S-E-T-T, as in set in her ways, I thought. <laughs> Maybe the reason you've chosen the name. She's sort of the town nag and is trying, as I say, to bring about some conformity and uniformity in this town. Is it the best way, do you think, to go at this problem by addressing a book to young people? When it comes to young people, it's, yeah, I do think that talking to young people about it is a good idea. My biggest work, my work on earth is being an advocate for young people. And when we underestimate them and we take away their agency, it hurts my feelings. And, and it also, it, it, makes, it makes adults look silly, first of all, because either they're not connected to young people or don't talk to them, don't have this actual discussions with them. Or they really just underestimate them or, or believe that, I suppose, that they can stay 11 forever or something. And don't we all? It'd be nice to just be in a tent in my backyard right now and not have to work or pay a mortgage. But in fairness, you know, we do all grow up. So I do think that it's a wonderful thing to equip young people with critical thinking. One of the things that really excites me, I'm taking a children's lit course in grad school right now. One of the things that really excites me is the number of different voices we're seeing on the shelves these days. The ALA Youth Awards this year has more authentic voices nominated than I think they ever have before. Firekeeper's Daughter, written by Angeline Bouli, a member of the Ojibwe Band. You have Watercress, Unspeakable about the Tulsa Massacre, The Las Cuentista, is the fact that we're seeing more representation and more, I hate to use the word different because that otherizes them, but a bigger variety of voices, is that correlating to the fact that book bans are going up? I don't think there's any mistake in your logic there, Kate. I think that when we're asked to move forward, right? And this is, I'll throw this at you. It's a quick one. Here's my theory. I, have, I feel that there's trauma in the soil in America. I think it comes from our founding I think there's trauma here, and I think that it actually soaks up into our feet when we walk around. And it soaks up into our kids' feet, too. And I think generation after generation, we all make a decision to lie to our kids or to not lie to our kids. I don't lie to children. I want to tell them the truth. I want to tell them as best as I can and equip them as best as I can to go out there. I think that quieting a giant portions of our of our population or, or not representing them in literature is a lot not lying to children but close to it akin to it but i think that once we got to that place where we were just about to address that trauma that i'm talking about and maybe we're this close to finally just saying hey here's some mistakes we made let's correct those let's move forward this way a bunch of people saw that as a zero-sum game and said, whoa, this cannot happen. And I think that's why we're here. I also do think that kids are being used as political pawns right now. And this has a lot to do with dismantling public education. But we will not get into that. Otherwise, we will be here until Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> well, before Kate goes into your, to the way you write, there's a very interesting scene in the book where Mrs. Set is teaching the Thanksgiving story. And she's teaching the wonderful colonists and the Indians, and they're all together and whatever. And and the kids say, but that's not what happened, Mrs. Set. And she says, yeah, I know, but I can't teach it that way now. It's an interesting problem and conundrum for a teacher. And that was actually Columbus Day. I don't mean to correct you because that feels really wrong because you're like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't need you to understand. You're like world news guy. And so, like, I don't want to, like, come up against you. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Columbus. I'm sorry. And that came from a real thing a kid told me that his teacher said, we can't teach you that now. You have to wait for high school or college for that. And I found that and he still walks around with that in his head, you know, and it's just sort of interesting to me that 
that anybody feels that that held back from just the truth. It's not a big deal. It's just like, oh, you know, we were lied to or conveniently lied to. 54% of the American population has issues with reading level, right? We were looking at 54% of Americans read at or below the sixth grade reading level. And what I know of that isn't so much the statistics that have to do with literacy, but I know from knowing my students deeply that that means we have a lot of people walking around hiding inside of themselves and scared that they might sound stupid. And so when we look at these pushes for bans and that sort of thing, I get letters in my inbox and they actually say, you know, I didn't read your book, but they start with that, which I think is a fantastic <laughs> opening, right? It's a great opening. But they start with that. They admit that. And then they say, but I think it's going to be a dangerous book or I think it's going to whatever, right? It's not this book, but another book. I got that recently. And what you're finding, though, is that most people aren't reading these. This is a this is a movement that is a special interest kind of group. And they're getting lists and then they're just taking the lists to the board and they're not reading the books. And that means what we have is a bunch of adults doing what they're told. That, to me, is a little bit of an alarm bell. I want to talk a little bit about the canon of your work. You've talked about your work being appropriate for 14, 15, older, although I think Marvin Gardens and this probably skews a little bit younger. What is it about this stage of the mind that fascinates you, and how do you write to it? Or do you write to it? Do you just write and it connects with the audience? I wanted to write books that helped adults understand teenagers and help teenagers understand adults. And so at 14, that was my goal. I didn't really realize I was doing that until I was well into my career. I'm like, hey, I think I'm doing that. So that's young adult and that's different. And that, I mean, I, I love teenagers. I'm just a fierce advocate for them. But middle grade is another really interesting time of life. And I don't know if, I got kind of stuck in that young adult place. I like it because I do write very literary, I guess. I don't know what to call them, weird feel like over the last few years, there has been a pileup of reality in, in kids' lives. Um, systematic racism being confronted through the George Floyd murder, environmental disasters, the pandemic, the war in the Ukraine. How do you feel like your audience has changed since you started writing? And how do you think these last three years have changed them? And do you think it will change the way you write at all? Well, I don't know if I've seen them change. I've seen their parents change. I've seen the adults around them change. And get more fearful, mm. full of fear and trying to protect, which is interesting because there are some pretty interesting things and pretty simple things we could do to protect from the things we're talking about. And those aren't usually the avenues we take. I mean, they've always been incredibly capable, intelligent human beings, kids. And now with all this information available in a tiny computer in their pocket, they're, they're even more unstoppable. I see the adults around them changing a bit more. And I see, like you mentioned, with sort of teachers maybe wondering, oh, should I teach this or should I buy this from my library even because of maybe some pushback, like I'm seeing even that sort of fear because they're afraid of the other adults. So it's like afraid adults are afraid of afraid adults. Everybody's scared about the adults. And in the meantime, we say it's for the kids, but uh, the kids kind of see through all that. Like they already know the truth. I mean, this has always been the case. I'm sure it was the same for every generation. Teenagers are actually the smartest people on the planet. And oftentimes I'll do, I do, when I do uh, events with adults in libraries or whatever, every year I get the question, when are you going to write a real book? And I'm like, oh, what's a real book? They're like, a, a book for adults. And I'm like, oh, first of all, you haven't read my books. Because if you read Dig, you'll see that's as much for adults as any other book. 
Second of all, raise your hand if you can do calculus. Let me tell you what, most adults can't do calculus. And when I'm in a high school, most of those hands go up. And I, I, you know, I joke about it and say I prefer to write for the, for the, you know, section of society that can still do algebra. Um, <laughs> I joke, it's a joke, but at the same time, it's not. It, it is me saying it's really an emotional thing. I think they're still in touch with their emotions. They haven't cut themselves off from it because they haven't deemed themselves an adult. And sadly, that's something we equate with adulthood. Well, Amy Sarah King, or A.S. King, asking, it has been a pleasure asking you questions and have a chance for this conversation. Thank Indeed. you very, Thank very you so much. much. Thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Amy Sarah King, Rapid Fire, most influential book in your life. God bless you, Mr. Rosewater by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Why? Because Elliot Rosewater is my literary crush. Let me tell you why. He inherits, uh, actually, the, the character, the largest character in the book is a sum of money. It's the sum of money in the Rosewater Foundation that Elliot has inherited. He had run as the Rosewater, like this, this, I don't know how to explain it, but people can call him and say, I'm really down on my luck. And I could really use some money. And so he writes these checks to these these people that his family wouldn't have even talked to. And so the family who didn't get the inheritance are trying to prove that he's crazy for being basically a humanist. And it is the most beautiful book. If I weren't a writer, I would be? Mm, I would open literacy centers, probably. I helped. I don't know how to explain what I did in Jamaica, but I was working in literacy in Ireland, in rural Ireland, and then did some work in Jamaica and... They have a terrible literacy problem there. I should just say a large literacy problem. And I would open literacy centers. And especially I would open a lot of literacy center here, centers here for people who just want to make to improve their skills and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Books still on your bucket list. It's a lot of rereads. I want to reread. I, I, Salman Rushdie is the reason I started. I actually literally moved from a seat reading to a seat writing. And my typewriter was in the next room I, and I closed the back cover of the Satanic Versus. And I'm like, I'm doing this now. And I got up and started writing novels. So I'd love to read. There's two of his I haven't read, but gosh, I can't think of any. I don't have one on my bucket list now, but if I was downstairs by my bookcase, I could tell you that I have three shelves of a, a to-be-read pile. When you give a gift of a book to someone, what do you give them? 
when someone has a baby, I give the snowy day and where the, where the wild things are because those were my two favorite. And sometimes Harold and the Purple Crane. When it's an adult, I give Vonnegut. If they haven't read him before, I give them Slaughterhouse-Five and Breakfast of Champions and they can choose. And that's how it was given to me. If they've already read him and they haven't read, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, I give them that. Okay, in five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Five? I guess I'll add the, I'll add an article in there. Lift the young people up. Kate, it's an interesting conversation because she points out that the conversations that take place around issues that are in banned books and challenged books are conversations really that shouldn't be taking place among adults. They should be taking place between the kids and their parents. And when you start banning books because you think that they represent themes that you don't want kids reading about, really what you're doing is cutting off the kids' intellectual curiosity. And as Amy said, and I think it's the most important thing, I am an advocate for young people. That that is really what I think. They are the smartest people around. They know this stuff. You can't protect them from what's going on around them. They know stuff that's going on in society, and they want to talk about it. And if you keep books from them that address the issues, you are cutting off their intellectual growth. I don't think you can survive in this country or even in this world without critical thinking. And if you take away the intellectual freedom of kids, and it's happening on both sides, both blue and red, when you take that intellectual freedom away from kids, you limit their ability to explore critical thinking. And it's vital in today's world. I really, really, I really believe it's vital. I also believe, as my father said, that sometimes we do this to spare ourselves the uncomfortable conversations we have with our kids. I was reading Babar to Charlie the other day, and I got as far as the old lady taking Babar to the clothing store after she taught him to speak properly. And they were trying on proper civilized clothes, and I got very uncomfortable. And Charlie asked me why. And we had a conversation right then and there about colonialism. Is it a conversation that I was excited to have? No, not really, because it made me uncomfortable and we had to talk about white privilege. But those conversations aren't comfortable, but they're important for kids to get a 360-degree view of the world. And what Amy Sarah King writes in her acknowledgments, which I love, is she writes, and I think she's writing for her audience, younger folks. She says, I want you to care about intellectual freedom, which is the right to read. I'm pretty sure if you got this far in the book, you do care, and you're probably sick of being treated like someone who knows less than you know. Good. Keep it up. My side of the deal is that I'll keep reminding adults that they need to listen to you more. And I think that's the thesis statement of all of her writing. And she is not somebody who filled a gap in the market for young kids. She doesn't want to write for anybody else. She's really a passionate advocate for her audience. And I love that about her. And I love that about her writing. I think it comes through in her writing. Mostly she has written about emotional problems that young people will face. This is really her first foray into the issue of things being kept from kids. And as I say, it's a very mild case in Tack of the Black Rectangles. It's just excising a couple of words. But as she points out, it's a slippery slope. Once you start excising and redacting words, then maybe you're going to get into a challenge of the book itself. And then maybe the book is going to get banned. And then maybe you're not going to have the kinds of conversations that Kate just talked about. So this is a, use the word exploding phenomenon. Maybe that's unfair, but it is certainly occurring more and more, as was pointed out in a recent report from PEN America. 
And that report was written by a fellow named Jonathan Friedman. And we had a chance to talk with him about the numbers, about how much book banning is going on, who is advocating the book banning, and whether or not that's having an intimidating effect on librarians, school boards, even publishers around the country. Our conversation with Jonathan Friedman of PEN America. Jonathan Friedman, we just talked to Amy Sarah King, and we talked about a book where there had been redactions. And that's one thing, the rectangles, the black rectangles that take out a word or two. But obviously, that is the beginning of what can lead to banning books entirely. And I gather from your report, things are getting a lot worse on that score. How bad are they? Well, I have been working on freedom of expression and issues surrounding book bans myself for about four years. And the first three years follow one pattern, which includes occasional stories, individual parents maybe challenging a book here or there, writing a letter to the district and then having them realize, oh, yeah, they shouldn't just give in to this parent's demand. And then the past year is totally different. We're talking about an escalating, dramatic increase in challenges. We're talking about mass lists circulating on the Internet. We're talking about performative readings of books at school boards in an effort to embarrass and intimidate school administrators. And we're talking about books, you know, being restricted, permissions for parents before students can even take a book off a shelf. We're talking about books, whole cloth being removed from school libraries. And even in some places, directives like that all teachers must have no books in their classrooms whatsoever, no classroom libraries, which particularly for younger grades is how young people learn to read. A lot of the time is through a preponderance of books in those classrooms. I've read your report, which has some amazing data in it. And it says that Pan America has identified at least 50 groups that have been involved in pushing for book bans and that many of these groups, 73 percent, appear to have formed since 2021. Why now? This is a great question. And I think there are a few things at work. One of them is that there are some groups who have been pushing this idea for years. They got new energy from the pandemic against schools, but they didn't like schools as far back as four, five, six years ago. The difference is that suddenly those ideas got some political purchase. People started listening to them who were in political power or other individuals gave them money. Some of it is politics. Some of it is ideas that were there, somewhat fringe ideas that are now basically getting more mainstream political purchase. And then some of it is new energy that I think has been fired up perhaps because of the Glenn Youngkin election, where he seemed to make parents' rights a big issue. But then just, you know, as you said, 70% of these groups have flowered up all over the country and they have very local names, but they are engaging in almost identical tactics. I'm taking a children's lit class this semester. And one of the things we've been talking about is the rise in authentic voices in, especially in YA and children's literature, folks from marginalized groups getting to tell their own stories. And that there's a rise in that and in the award winners that we're seeing, you know, the Newberries and and that sort of thing. Is there a correlation, you think, between the rise of authentic voices and these book challenges? Well, I think no question. We wrote in 2016 a, a report called Missing from the Shelf, and it talked then about the lack of diversity in authorship and stories in schools. And if you look at some of the major bands that are happening, some of the biggest stories target huge lists of books that were created actually because they were created to advance diversity in literature in schools. So, for example, somebody makes a list, a list of books that says, 
I want books that center black protagonists, you know, and I would like to have a list of those books that I could acquire from my school to have more diversity on the shelves. And then somebody takes that list and says, aha, this is divisive. This is racist itself. It's critical race theory. Let's ban all these books. Nobody is reading the books who is demanding that they be removed. They're either taking lists that somebody else made or sometimes they're just doing keyword searches using library databases and tools basically against the library itself. What's most shocking here is the lack of reading taking place and the lack of consideration and deliberation in many cases. Not all, but in many cases. Jonathan, you talk about an explosion in numbers in the last year. Put some numbers on this. This is happening school district by school district. How many districts are facing these kinds of challenges? So we documented in the 21-22 school year, that's from July 2021 to June 2022. So it's a really bounded period. We found 138 school districts with something going on of this nature. Now, that is not every school district where a challenge was happening. It's where some kind of ban resulted. So actually, the challenges and the dramatic dynamics that I'm describing have actually taken place at more places than we have counted. The other thing that's important to recognize is there's a range of forms of censorship taking place here. Sometimes it's a prohibition on books being used in a classroom. Sometimes it's an outright ban that a book can't be in a school whatsoever. And sometimes we have a category we call banned pending investigation because we had all these cases where books or sets of books were removed, but then they go into a kind of limbo. Somebody says, well, okay, somebody objects to like 20 books and the school district rather than saying, okay, well, here's the process that we're going to go through and then we'll determine if the books ought to be pulled. They pull the books right away and they say, okay, well, these are now under review. You know, in Florida, they said they were putting them in quarantine. That was a, a fun word. And the problem here with this logic is it means that if I bring 500 challenges, you're just going to shut down the library and spend all this time reviewing it. And believe it or not, that actually happened in Leno at a public library, not a school library. But there, they did shut down the library to read. Every, they said they were reviewing every book. I'm interested in, so you got 138 districts with bans. You've got 32 states with bans. So what do you say to somebody who reads this report and goes, well, it doesn't really affect me. It's only going on at the local level and it's not in my community. Why should we pay attention? Well, I think like any other issue in the United States, we are supposed to be governed by a set of, you know, basic civil liberties, basic human rights, basic constitutional protections. And those are meant to extend all over the country. And so that is something that ought to concern anybody anywhere. But also this is chipping away at the way in which all members of the rising generation are going to be schooled and, you know, trained to read and trained to critique. So that's one challenge here that I think is emerging. The other is in particular for students of color or LGBTQ youth, particularly in some parts of the country where they aren't overrepresented in populations. These are historically marginalized communities or underrepresented. Even for LGBTQ youth, you're growing up in a society that still is fairly heteronormative where books and stories about people like you can help you understand the feelings you're having, the experiences that you're coming to, the identity that is forming. And now you have school districts saying quite aggressively in some cases, they're going to take that away from young people and they ought not to have it. Now, look, there might be some conversations about at what age young people ought to be able to read these things. But the truth is, most of the time, students gravitate toward reading books that speak to them. If they're not ready for a book, it either a goes over the head or they put it down. The interesting thing is we talked to Amy Sarah King. She made the point that what this is doing is cutting off the conversations that really ought to be taking place at home, that you read a book and you bring it home and you have that discussion about whatever controversial topic may be in the book. 
that what's happening is those conversations are being cut off, that there is no chance for a kid to read a book and come home and say, mom, dad, tell me about this. What should I know about this, et cetera? Well, exactly. And I mean, nobody is trying to say that parents don't have a role in schools. Obviously, students learn better when parents and teachers are partners. That's clear from all the studies of parental involvement. And that's the point of school. Schools are meant to, they're not going to, schools are never going to solve everything. They're never going to be the sum totality of people's experiences. And there is meant to be conversations at home that complement them. And the school's job is to present the complexity of You know, let's take something like history. You know, there has been this effort in some places right now to teach, quote unquote, both sides of the Holocaust or of slavery or in particular to not make white people, quote unquote, the enemy of the history of the United States. You know, whether we're talking about the founders or whether we're talking about slaveholders or whatever it is, Jim Crow era, no parent ought to be excluded from these processes. But what's happening right now is a strange logic where one parent's feelings about these things should somehow override and be the deciding factor for all parents in a classroom or in a school district. And part of the problem is, is that mostly other parents don't even realize this is happening in their school districts or they're slowly being aw- awakened to it right now and now starting to form a response. But for the last year, it has been somewhat crickets. So when you have a really adamant group of parents or even just citizens demanding that books are removed and there's no countervailing voices whatsoever, then that is where the school district goes. So we need people to get more vocal about standing up for, you know, not just the books they want, but the diversity of books that ought to be in a school and the freedom to read as a core constitutional principle. We talked a little bit about one of the insidious effects uh, of book bans and book challenges is quiet censorship, meaning the publishers staying away from books that might be controversial and self-censorship where librarians won't, you know, they want to avoid conflict. So they stack what's safe. So my question is, are you getting a sense that those things are going up as well? And is there any way to measure that data? My sense is that that all kinds of things are kind of going up right now. It is difficult to know comprehensively, I think, in any of these cases, what's going on. But yes, I get stories all the time of things like this. Bizarre changes, uh, you know, books disappearing from schools. I had a story that a librarian went into her school library overnight. Uh, sorry, she went in the next morning and she knew that overnight someone had been in there because a set of keys was left behind. But she didn't know like which books had been taken. There are all kinds of stories like this of things that are taking place in the shadows. Our effort here is to at least collate all the news stories that we have seen. And there is a dearth of local news reporting just with the death of local news in the country. School board issues, school districts and books, these are inherently local issues. Without that reporting, it's much harder to get a grasp of what's happening in a lot of places. So I do suspect that our numbers are really minimum counts. You've chronicled the number of districts. Have you actually put a number on the number of books that have been challenged in various places around the country? Yeah, so we also looked at the number of unique titles. There's a few different things you can track here. One is how often a district bans any particular books. So if a district bans 10 books, that's 10 bans. But then you can also see across the country how many books have ended up on these lists. We've tracked 1,648 in this 12-month period. And I know that number is actually still going up if you continue it into 2022. So all kinds of books have been swept onto these lists. And people would be quite surprised, I think. I've seen a list that contains a book by Eric Carl, the writer of The Hungry Caterpillar. You know, it's not just Margaret Atwood and Kurt Vonnegut here. Todd Parr has a book. Uh, He writes these children's books with cute cartoons. He has a book called The Family Book, which shows different families. And so that book has ended up on some of these lists. There are books by Ruby Bridges on some of these lists. There are books 
by Rick Riordan, who writes young adult kind of fiction books based on Greek mythology. One of the books, or at least one I know, has a non-binary character named as such, and therefore that book is being targeted on these lists. So it's really quite widespread, the number of authors and the number of texts that are being pulled into this. Uh, it's not just it, what it was. This is not just Toni Morrison. Um, it's really going, it's really spreading quite broadly. Jonathan Friedman, it is important work that you do chronicling all of this making people aware of just what is happening and how widely it is occurring. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And all the best to, to Penn America and the work that you're doing. If you believe that book banning is not a very good idea and Kate and I are there, that's the one political issue that we feel pretty strongly about. What he has to say, Kate, is sobering. I think that it's really interesting. I think the generation below me is undergoing a gender revolution, as well as leading the charge on fighting systematic institutional racial injustice. I think there's something to the fact that 41% of the books that are being challenged have LGBTQA themes. I think there's something to the fact that 21% have issues of themes of racism. I think that we as a world are getting comfortable with changes that should have happened a long time ago. And this is our painful step and a half back. Well, I think the critical thing, your kids know this stuff. I mean, you know, your mom, my wife has been in education all their life. They know sexual issues. They know LGBTQ community issues. And there is certainly a, a rising realization of racial issues in this country. You live in Minneapolis. It starts, well, it didn't just start with George Floyd, but it certainly has a, a major issue in the country since then. The kids know it. And if they can read critically about it, it's not going to change uh, anything. Uh, they'll just want to understand things and they can do that through reading reading is so critical and when you restrict their chance to read you restrict their intellectual growth so it's been interesting to talk to amy sarah king and to jonathan friedman kate i hope we revisit this topic of book bans and book challenges as it continues to develop because i think when you don't tell kids the truth they don't trust adults um, and I think that's really, really important. Intellectual freedom, really, really important. Once again, the book is Attack of the Black Rectangles. Amy Sarig King is the author. And Jonathan Friedman comes from Penn America. And you can find his report on book banning and book challenges at penn.org. And it's worth reading. So we want to remind you of the folks who made this uh, podcast possible. And then we'll conclude with some uh, a final thought from Amy Sarah King. The Book Case is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian. Coda? Yeah, I got one. Live the heck out of your life. Live the heck out of your life. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? 
In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.